crazy. You never know who gives you the calling, right? Like hip-hop, for example. The first time I heard hip-hop, I was seven years old, right? And, you know, back in our generation, when I first heard it, yo, the lyric was dip, dip, dive, so socialized. Clean out your ears and you open your eyes. That's prophetic. Clean out your ears so you can hear clearly, open your eyes so you can see clearly. And for me, that hit me like that. It hit me like a dance rap. It hit me like, oh, shit, I got to clean out my ears and open my eyes. You know what I mean? It hit me on that level. You know what I mean? So that was my calling. This is Nas. You're now listening to The Bridge, 50 Years of Hip Hop. What up, everyone? It's your co-host, Minya O, a.k.a. Miss Info. In the Wu-Tang Clan universe, the RZA has always been the leader, the big ideas thinker of this legendary collective. So when Nas and I got the chance to sit down with RZA, we dove into both his physical and spiritual paths. RZA told us what it was like navigating the racial dynamics of Staten Island as a kid, a longtime stronghold of the New York Mafia, as well as how it was growing up with 11 siblings and how that gave him perspective when dealing with the many relationships of the Wu. Nas and RZA also spoke on the influence of the 5% Nation, on their personal journey, and on New York hip-hop. So many incredible stories shared. Hope you enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. I think everybody remembers the first time they heard Wu-Tang because it's just so different from anything that had existed before in hip-hop. Out of the slums of Shaolin came this rugged crew. Their whole mission was chopping off heads with lyrical swords. Wu-Tang sound was an incredible mix of kung fu movie clips, 5% ideology, and musical chaos. And the RZA was the architect. He and the rest of the clan would go on to conquer the world. But we must never forget the Wu-Tang Saga started from the underground. Hi, Rizza. Peace. Peace. Bong bong. Hey, y'all in the building. The Abbott. It's great to see you. I got to excuse me a little bit. I actually 
got tricked by some younger people last night. They had too much shit spilling. I, you know, what I mean, I'm kind of like moder- moderate. You know what I mean? <laughs> what, 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 what was know. the poison? I'm sure the scene was crazy. Chila and pineapple juice it makes you feel like everything is tropical. You know what I mean? Yeah. On a vacation immediately. <laughs> Yo, bro. I'm gonna just go right in. Coming out of Staten Island, Shaolin. Shout to Staten Island. Have you ever been to Paul Castellano's mansion, the head of the Gambino family? <laughs> wow, that's a, that's a serious question, yo. I never I never been there, yo. But um, I went to school with with the family, and I, you know, it was uh, you know, Staten Island is, is that type of place where the, the integration of Italian culture and Black culture was right there. And, and even though it was one of those places that you had certain neighborhoods, like you know, as I was growing up, it was like you can't go there, yo. You, if you go there, you get chased out of there. You know what I mean? It was really that type of thing. But still, in the school, I went to Curtis High School, even in junior high school, IS sixty one. The family members were there. You know what I mean? And something that was definitely reflective of the chamber of the parents or their grandparents. But they had those, you know, those who were not reflective of that chamber, just just regular kids in school, just trying to pass their grades. You know what I mean? May have asked me a question on the test. You know what I'm saying? It's crazy, you know. As, as we adults, we we think, you know, we think about it now. It's just like when you know your kids, it's kind of it feels mythological. But in reality, it was people being people, and families having their internal conflicts, and somebody having to bite the bullet for that. You know, the other part that I'm curious about is how the racial lines were navigated. Because, you know, now everybody's talking about race. But back then, you were kind of living in a world where mafia culture and American mythology was, like, influencing hip-hop, right? As a reference, it was, like, abstract. Artists were talking about movies and, and things like that. You were actually living in the real world of that. But black and white were kids together at all like we're nah i mean in the, in the early phase of it not nah. to be honest i think wu-tang brought staten island together because staten island had that place like they had a sign spray painted like, like no niggas you know what i mean like but that was kind of excuse my language but that was kind of like right on over the uh on the train bridge you know what i mean like the place is called rosebank that's like the neighborhood right and it was very anti-blacks and uh you know, I got chased out of there. Everybody got chased out of there, to be honest with you. You know, any you will talk to any Wu member, he got you. A, he, he's going to give you a Rosebank story. They had the A and P there, so you would go to A and P just to you know maybe pack some bags, try to get your hustle on. And it was so intense. The funniest thing I could I, I could really say is that you knew not to go there if they came to our neighborhood because you know, we had the weed and the drugs, so they had to come over over to us to get that. They get robbed beat up, sent back home. But the beautiful thing about it is as time went on, though that particular generation had had died down. And even, you know, I was doing the Wu-Tang series, we were shooting on Staten Island. And one day after work, my buddy Jimmy and my buddy John, you know, was one night finished filming. And I said, oh, let's get a drink after you finish work, Bobby. Yeah, cool. Well, meet, meet me over here. Meet me in Rosebank, right? What? No, no. And I went there. We got drunk. The bartender pulled everything for free. The band started playing. People started showing up. It was in the building. It, just, it was a love fest, yo. <laughs> and I was saying to myself, like, yo, like, <laughs> you know what I mean? This, I, I told John, yo, this shit used to be crazy. And John's Puerto Rican. 
So John was like, yo, yeah, I got chased out of here when I was a kid too. He said, look, hey, Bobby, look at us now. <laughs> Everything changed, yo. The power of hip hop. The power of hip hop. I remember New York being like that, man, like real, real crazy with those can't go this way, can't go that way. RZA, how was it your household growing up? Tell us about where you grew up and what was the what was it like? I know your brother Devon, peace to Devon. You have more brothers than that though, right? Yeah, in reality, I come from eleven. It's eleven of us, you know what I mean? In reality. So, you know, there's never enough, right? That many children. I tell my son and my daughter now, like, to just really to give homage to my, my old love. She passed away, but it's not easy raising eleven children when when the father is a is an absentee. And uh, she did that, yeah. But in the midst of, you know, as you could call it, whether whatever you're from, poverty or deprivation or even the, the lack of that love, you know, Nas, like being present for our children, you know what I mean? You know, as I'm growing up, that was that that was absent. And the moms really had a lot of weight on her hand. Midst of all that, of her struggling and dreaming for a better day, the love never lost. The love was always there, you know what I mean? And even between my brothers and sisters. Actually, it was one Thanksgiving. I think it was like, you know, as I got into the 2000s or whatever. And I was I was doing some film that was overseas. And I just looked at my life and just took a reflection. And I just said, you know what? This Thanksgiving, I better thank my siblings more than anybody. Because without that many siblings, I wouldn't be able to understand how to deal with all the personalities that I face in life. So... Wow. I'm able to be with all the Wu-Tang because I'm able to understand all the personalities. I'm able to be a director on a movie set with all the actors, everybody, oh, I need a bigger trailer or whatever they want. I'm able to understand it because I, got, I had siblings that all had these different personalities. So I was like, that's how I, that's where I learned it from. I realized that. And I just sent everybody this big, long Thanksgiving thank you letter. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, uh, but no, I'm, I'm grateful for that experience of having, you know, that many brothers and sisters and being living in that household because uh was that Stapleton or one of those projects or right next to it or Yeah, I was right next to Stapleton. I lived on Laurel Avenue. It was kinda like the you know in the middle of the projects. It's always a house. What is all that about, yo? Right. <laughs> <laughs> right, even in Brownsville, like you live in Brownsville, then the next box somebody got a brownstone. It's like, yo, son, it's not the best place for your brownstone. <laughs> right. Nah, yeah, it was always, it was weird. I lived in between two projects. I lived in between Stapleton and Park Hill. But, like, you get to 49 High School, you got to walk past my house. If Stapleton wanted to go to Park Hill to get some weed, you're going to walk past my house. You know what I mean? I had the 24-hour store on, on my corner. And actually, to be honest, it was the first 24-hour store I've ever seen in my life. It's many of them in New York. You know, and I'm a traveler. I may say the first 24-hour store might have been on Staten Island, yo. <laughs> Yo, I'm serious. You should look that up in Bodega history. Yeah, you look that up in Bodega history. (laughs) And homie had the best late night chicken and cheese sandwich you could get. (laughs) He had a line for those chicken and cheeses, yo. (laughs) I also want to know, in the middle of all that, you know, you've been in the streets and y'all was outside. And this is the golden era of the era. And, you know, you, you catching the case attempted murder case in Ohio. You shot somebody. This is the time of karate flicks at the same time, which everybody loved karate flicks. Everybody's wearing the karate slippers. Everybody's trying to practice kung fu. Everybody's throwing Chinese stars. I had Chinese stars. I used to get in trouble (laughs) with them things in school. So all of this is happening at one time. 
and this is happening to you. No, it's a, it's, a, it's crazy if you if you go back to look at it. But first, let me just jump to the kung fu of it all. Hey, Nas, you remember like on three o'clock on Saturdays? Yes. I don't care. You was hustling, playing basketball, skateboarding. At three o'clock, everybody went upstairs in the crib. The project was empty. We were watching Saturday afternoon Kung Fu Theater. Absolutely. And then when it went off, everybody came back outside and started breaking the mom's broomstick, making yeah. boot chucks. <laughs> right? Yo, Riz, I, I went to the movie theaters a few times. My pops would take us to see the Green Hornet. It would be like three mm. movies would come on throughout the day or four or five movies. And we catch yeah. like all these karate joints in the theaters, but the Saturday night, the Saturday afternoon joints, nothing like it. You just described it to a T, bro. Hey, yo, that's why me and DJ Scratch, we made our album. We named it. We named it that title because it was like, in all reality, it was something special about that because it was something that made the hood chill out for a minute. Could you tell us that and- title? Yeah, we, we named our, our new album. It's called Saturday Afternoon Kung Fu Theater. <laughs> like, Yo! we went all the way, went all the way for it, like, bong. And, um... I, I seen the pictures of you two together. Yeah, yeah, scratches on fire with this one. Mm. But even the drug dealers went upstairs. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. But going back to all that street life, you know, my brother Devon led the path. I'm not saying it was positive, but he was the first hustler in the family. You know what I mean? And, you know, at 16 years old, he pulled up with... with Two big cables. He had the little, the whip. Then he had the Honda Prelude or something like that. You know what I mean? But he's 16, though. Know, you know what I mean? And 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 him and, and Power, he pulled up with the 190. It's like, they young dudes, but they was like already in it. And I was still just doing music. And I actually was saying to myself, I'm not going to never sell no crap. You know what I mean? Like, that ain't my thing. And then when uh, Devon got, he got locked up, you know, that was a few years later. But when he got locked up, me and Ghost was just living in that apartment. My mom's already left us. And it was just like, yo, rent was way back. What are we going to do? And the only fucking option was like, yo, you got to hustle, kid. You got to get the muscle on. And we ended up joining that. You know, to me, I felt like it was disgraceful because I didn't like hurting my own community. I had to eat, though. You know what I mean? Right, bro. And we started just going, you know, got dirty, involved, just a, you know what I mean? We just went for it. And then we was like... In New York, it wasn't working for us, all that shit. So we was like, yo, my mom's moved to Ohio. We was like, let's go down to Ohio. <laughs> my mom's moved back to Ohio to kind of like, you know what I mean, to, to start a new life. We show up and shit, and uh, we turned that place upside down in a way, you know what I mean? And it led to all negativity, to be honest with you. You know, Raekwon says that verse in Cream, which everybody was praising as we was young, right? It was like... You know, every week we made 40 G's. And if you look at 10 dudes making 40 G's, that's only four G's a man. You know what I mean? Mm. And the problems you're causing for that 40 G's, right? You destroy your community. You might get a bad batch of coke that don't come back because, you know, it might melt in the bag or synthetic. And it's all negative. And somebody's going to get locked up. And then you look at it. When we went positive, you know what I mean? On On a, you know, you get a good festival night. You might could catch 400 in one night on a good festival night, right? So the positivity outweighed the negativity. So if you're waiting for 40 Gs for a week of negative, which, you know, somebody may go, that sounds dope to me. I could go, nah, son. And then you could turn that shit to a fucking, you know what I mean, to a million dollars a week by going positive, what would you do? And I think, Nas, you could, you could attest to this, that 
this positive route that we chose through our music and through our art, it not only blessed us, it blessed our community, blessed people around us. You know, like for each one of us who are successful, it's a dozen families eating off of that. And now, though, if we say we go on tour, the light man family, the sound man family, the stage manager, the caterer, everybody is eating off of what we did that's positive versus us trying to eat and go to war for what's negative. A lot of people put a lot of people up as the top producers in rap. And um, if your name ain't there, that's not even a list. Because I think they got to get past or get next to what you've done with just with your vision and your foresight alone. And then structuring things. And because you as Prince Rakim, I remember you back then. I remember seeing you around. And you knew what you was doing. If I was a young guy coming up, I was living in Staten Island, I would have stuck with you because you knew what you was doing and you had the sound and you had the vision. The future of where rap was going was right in your head. So I can see what would make all these great artists, all these great lyricists, all these real men from the, for your team want to get around you and understand where you was going with it. And I, also, I said to Raekwon years ago, I commend you guys and salute you guys because for it to be that many street niggas and y'all niggas ain't kill each other with that with that money coming, I said that's a book right there. That's they should teach that in schools to gangs to everything, bro. So I salute you all and all that. And then there's the TV show, of course, where everybody's in there seeing how it went down and getting a kind of a a glimpse in there. I assume there's a movie coming. Yeah, we're working on, you know, continuing the saga, you know what I mean? And thank you for those beautiful words, brother, you know what I mean? Oh, I mean, of course, you know, definitely, you know, it's nothing easy about it, but I think, let me just say this out loud, so, you know, for your audience, and they, hopefully young people could gravitate. You know, we all study mathematics, right? And mathematics is like a pattern of thinking. Number one means knowledge. Do the knowledge first. Look, listen, observe, and respect everything, all right, before you react to it. You know what I mean? It's a lot of people don't respect things. They don't look. They don't listen. They don't observe. Observe is not just seeing. Observation is almost like a scientific process, yo. When the feds looking, they observing you for, like, a long time to build the case. They're observing it before they go to the wisdom, which is the activation of the knowledge, you know what I mean? And then if you do knowledge and wisdom, you, and you, the next step after that is understanding now you look, listen, observe, you manifest it, and now you can see it clearly, not just see it on the surface. You can see it 360 degrees. And then that, after that lesson came culture. And culture is your way of life, which means now you can live what you looked at and what you manifest and what you understood. You can now put that into your culture, you know what I mean? And that leads to your power. That tone of thinking is, is really... I haven't found out better. You know what I mean? I've been, you know, we've all been around the world, but I've been around the world. I don't read every book, Bible, Quran, Bhagavad Gita, studies of Buddha, Greek, everything. You know what I mean? I've, I studied so many things, and it's like I haven't found nothing better than this particular structure of thinking. And the beautiful thing about Wu-Tang is that everybody had a, a dose of that in their system. 
So when we, if, you, if you lost communication for whatever reason, whether emotions or whether desires or whether somebody else in your ear, you still had to bring it back to that foundation of mathematics. And when you bring it back to that foundation, if it adds up to that structure, it's undeniable. And that was a, a saving grace for us is that we all had a glimpse and the beauty of this knowledge itself. You know what I mean? So I just wanted to share that because I know it's not popular now. The young people, they're not going with 10 brothers and standing on a, in a cipher and building. The cipher was first building before it was a rap cipher. You know what I mean? Right. Which is cool. Huh. That cipher is not existing no more for young people. And so they don't know what today's mathematics is. They don't know how to structure the thoughts of a day and the time that they're in. But we did. And that was something that helped us as well. And it helped the culture because the Zulu Nation was all around hip hop in the hip hop's earliest stages. And the Zulu Nation is, you know, peace, unity, love, having fun, and all these things that we're starting to hear about as kids. And it was Africa was, was present. It was, you know, knowledge, history was present. And coming out of that into the, the more, more of lingo, more of the lyrical, as raps evolved in the early 80s, and, you know, people like Rakim, people like Kane, and Lakim Shabazz, King's son, a lot of brothers was in the 5% nation. And, you know, we say word because of 5%ers. We say so many things. So what you guys did by bringing a bunch of brothers together with that knowledge and making that, it was like the glue to you stand true to this thing. Because in some of your albums, I hear you mention how hip hop is going in the wrong direction. And that was important because you understood the knowledge itself part is more important than everything. And when we're dealing with the sounds, the electronic sounds, the 808 drum machines, the, you know, music is math. You know, the way you're putting together is, is math, is science. And when you're dealing with mathematics, it all works hand in hand. And those sounds that started hip hop, the certain type of EQ of the, the snare, whatever, all of those sounds you can hear in Wu-Tang stuff. And that's what made you go, like machine gun rap to all my ringers in the back, stadium pack. Just, just, just like you could jump from song to song. And hear how focused it is. It's really going back to the topic of resources and like how what you're doing really feeds an entire like tribe, right? It seemed like even early on, you saw the difference between the doing music versus hustling. Did you have to like convince, you know, there's always a lot of artists in, in Wu-Tang coming from different places, not just your own family. How did you raise that awareness or was there ever pushback? Nah, I was blessed not to have pushback in the beginning and just to be blunt with you, like whoever got a deal, you know, the company Wu-Tang Production, the money comes to us, 50% would stay with us and 50% would go to the artists. The 50% that stay with us feed those who don't got a deal. You know what I mean? So the system was designed so that nobody would never starve. Cause remember, Inspector Deck didn't get an album until years later. You know, Master Killer didn't get an album until years later. Uh, you go out and get an album. But the ones who died, who got their albums up front, you know what I mean, because of the structure. So, and we was fortunate, you know, to start getting real numbers in hip hop. You know what I mean? You know, we called a half a mil for Liquid Sports. And back when 
Cardi Brothers was catching two, three hundred for their album. Mm-hmm. I heard, I remember Showbiz and AG, they was like, yo, Showbiz and AG caught 250. I said, they caught 250? I'm gonna catch a half. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to beat that number. But the company was, was able to feed the rest of the team who wasn't earning money yet. It wasn't no problem, you know, I mean, as time went on, the problem came out, but it wasn't no problem in the beginning because, like, to be honest with you, I don't mind sharing this with you guys, like, if somebody even was rapping on somebody's album, you know, you get broke off, but you get no percentage of the album. That's his album. So on some of these songs, it could be five of us on it, but yet only, you know, the producer and the, and the um, rapper is getting the publishing on it. Right. And that was supposed to be happening for every album. But what happened was, as we started getting more popular, the industry started offering individual publishing deals. So when the industry offered you an individual publishing deal, now you got to hand the album in, you got to control X amount percentage, and the other person, he got to protect his publishing deal. So they're like, yo, hold on. You know, Ghost was on Ray album. So now his publisher is like, yo, it's my client. What's my, what's my piece of that action? And then as that started to happen, it started, you know, to get a little more shaky. So by the time we get to the year 2000, there's definitely a lot of uh, young man glitches going to happen. Because all that brotherhood and all that sharing, you can't really account for that. You can't account that, yo, yo, got my budget. Yo, we gave expected deck 25 Gs for my, for my shares. Like, yeah, that was like the philosophy. Now, the philosophy don't mean shit when the next deal, now, you know, that 300000 is now $1 million. So now, like... And now, wait, hold on. That lawyer is talking about it, or that publisher is talking about it. You know, it becomes a whole other thing. And so, as time went on, my C's, Gabby, his C's, go with his C's philosophy, started to disappear. <laughs> you know what I mean? But in the beginning, it was there, y'all. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. It was brilliant, the structure, pulling together everybody and making that happen. And we never seen it happen like that. I just think that it's super interesting. I never really heard you guys like identify how 
having a shared knowledge or having like a shared experience really helped you guys get over some of the bumps. So like Riza, you were basically proposing this sort of utopian setup where you go out, you get a deal, but half of it goes back into the collective and it supports the people who haven't gotten there yet. But like without being able to have that knowledge of self and the language of it, it would be a harder or easier for outside elements to kind of tear you guys apart. But where did it come from? Why was there such a strong base of the 5% nation in Staten Island? And, and Nas, did you have that too? I mean, it was obviously really yeah. deeply embedded in where Rakim and Kane were, but Whole New York. was it the same everywhere? Yeah. Oh, New York. And, and it, it was healthy. You know, it, it was, look, the newspapers used to write about it in, in the negative context because, of course, eventually as drugs become part of our culture and hustling become part of our culture, eventually the hustlers are going to be the ones who are, are the smartest. So you're going to get the Supreme Team. You know what I mean? You're going to get all these others. And it became, a, it, it built a negative connotation at the time. But in reality, the father who, who took the lessons from, took them from Elias Muhammad, who was a student of Master Farad Muhammad, these lessons were actually not available unless you spent a lot of time inside the temple or you had to become a minister almost. You might not see some of these lessons for 10 years. He takes them out and gives them to a teenager. So now you got a young man, mind being inspired with something that's almost like taking the college books and then giving them to the kid in the eighth grade with a intent, study this, master this. And the eighth grader is like, okay. And he masters it. And now he's coming back talking about, yo, the earth weighs six sextillion tons. You're like, what do you mean the earth weighs six sextillion tons? It does weigh six sextillion tons. That's six followed by 21 zeros. And you can prove it. How can you prove it? Well, if I take the diameter, which is 7,926 miles, right? If I take the diameter and take the circumference, circumference is 25,000 miles, right? So if I use uh, pi times the radius, right? And then multiply the circumference, there's a formula that's going to give you what the planet should weigh. It's not like it's a trick knowledge or nothing. It's real knowledge. They tell us, yo, it's 190,940,000 square miles of the planet Earth. Only 57,255,000 of it is land. It's 139,685,000, that's water. So the Earth is covered under the water three-fourths of its surface, right? And it spins at a speed of 1,037, one-third miles per hour while it's traveling around the sun. You learning this shit, you 14 years old learning this. And so now your mind is like, okay, now you're understanding your planet, you understand the square miles. You understand the distance, the sun, like Master Killer says. So now you're seeing all this. But you're young, though. Right. You know, you're, not, you're young learning this, and you're not just young being a gangster and being all this. You have this wisdom inside of you. That's missing, yo. To me, it's missing. People saying the Earth is flat now. <laughs> <laughs> they gonna went backwards on it. Like, wait a minute, yo. You know what I mean? It's like, I, used to, I used to fall asleep in the classrooms and I found out later when I started learning more about our history that we were being taught our own stuff that uh, through a different way, more European, more um, Western, more, you know, updated, but uh, really changed. So 
if I was to learn it the way I was taught it, the way my ancestors were taught it, would be on a much a higher, higher level of consciousness at the age of 14. So when I did start to read certain books on history, I started to fill in the blanks and, and realize this is what's feeding me, the truth. So it's being broken down to you in a word called algebra, stuff that your ancestors were dealing with thousands of years ago under a different name. So it's like uh, the lessons that when his brother brought me, he pulled me to the side. I must have been about 10 years old, 11 years old. And he pulled me to the side from my guys and said, I want, I got something for you. And went to say, don't go nowhere. And, and he, he would be called an enlightener because he gave me the lessons. I think it was 120. He gave, study this. When I see you, we're going to build on it. Boom. So I had to go try to hide that from my mom. I had to hide things from my moms back in the days. So, you know what I'm saying? But my boy's looking at me like, why he choose you? You know what I'm saying? Why he choose? He said, this ain't for them. When somebody approached them, they approached them. This is for you. And, you know, just starting to learn these things. It's like I always knew it was there before I even read it. We had a, I had a similar, similar experience at the age of 11. You know what I mean? It's crazy. You never know who gives you the calling, right? Like hip-hop, for example, the first time I heard hip-hop, I was seven years old, right? And, you know, back in old in our generation, when I first heard it, yo, the lyric was dip, dip, dive, so socialized. Clean out your ears and you open your eyes. That's prophetic. Clean out your ears so you can hear clearly, open your eyes so you can see clearly. And for me, that hit me like that. It hit me like a dance rap. It hit me like, oh, shit, I got to clean out my ears. And open my eyes. You know what I mean? It hit, me, it hit me on that level. So that was my calling. And then years later, I'll never forget seeing this. It was a, my aunt was dating this dope fiend. Dope fiend Donald. And she was dating him. And, you know, he used to come over to the crib and shit and, you know, sit at the table. And, and you know, my grandma would feed him, you know. But dope fiend Donald, he's over. He's sitting there. He's kind of like half nodding and shit. And grandma like, you want some food? Uh, I'm down on a hot dog. <laughs> he like, he like, yeah, may. Just no, I don't want nothing with no pork in it. I heard him say that. He's, yeah, but no pork. I will tell you, boy. He's leaning. He's like, the gods are right. I, I had knowledge of self and I fell. I, I lost it. But the gods are right. And he nodded and said, I was like, the gods are right. You know, it's like, yeah, study, study 120. Mm-hmm. And I had it because my brother had it. The judge had it already. He gave it to me, but I I was only 11, so I wasn't serious. But after hearing him say that, I picked it back up that night. And back then, it was like 19 people in the, in the crib, yo, two bedrooms, just to give you a little, little picture of this shit. The only place you got time to yourself is the bathroom. You know what I mean? So... I just sat in the bathroom for hours, yo, like this. And I was using the bathroom. That's my library, to be honest. You know what I mean? And I was just, and I just started studying the lessons. And, you know, I just, I mastered them. You know, by the time I was 12, I knew the whole 120 by quote. I could quote it backwards and forwards. But think about a dope fiend sitting there nodding, lost himself, but still able to say something to inspire another young mind to be like, okay, don't be me. Pick up your lessons, man. Study it. Similar to, you know, to you saying when the brother came to you. I just, it's weird how somebody older could come and, like, place the key in your hand. You know what I mean? And there were so many dope fiends coming up. Even me as a kid, I would see 
one of my homies, Step Pops, was a dope fiend, and my neighbors, and the heroin epidemic was ripping New York, had ripped New York to shreds. So to hear a dope fiend gave you that, that gem that just sparked this whole thing is just powerful. It's crazy. Ghetto shit. Ghetto shit for real. Ghetto greatness, you know? <laughs> Wu-Tang in general had so many different elements from different cultures. You know, you guys were just talking about Kung Fu, 5% Nation, all of these different elements coming in. As you guys really blew up and traveled the world, did you start incorporating, like, what else did you see? and Or did you see those same elements reflected in other cultures, too? Well, I think, um, Mia, that, you know, being a kid in the ghetto and, watching those Kung Fu movies, reading those comic books, or seeing the chess players out playing chess, the ghetto becomes like a microcosm to the macro. And when we got a chance to go out to the world, we actually, I think, are able better to adapt to it because we was we had a taste of it. Even though some of it is not real, right? Some of it is like, you know, it's just the comic version, or it's just like, it's just the movie version. You know what I mean? But it's still gives you an, a, a, a glimpse of that culture and an admiration of that culture. And I think that we we appreciated cultures around the world. You know what I mean? We appreciated being in Germany and German women, of course, right? But, but we appreciated <laughs> the, the, the culture of the people and being able to share our culture. So I think, you know, when you read, when you're young, when you, you know, go through comics, you go through film, you go through different... Uh, games or whatever from different cultures, it actually prepares you. And as far as the Asian culture, which, you know, I'm most enamored by the Asian culture. People thought, yo, you're going to have an Asian wife. I have a black wife. But, but everybody thought I was going to have an Asian wife. You know, they was like, you're going to marry an Asian woman. He's so much loving, loving. But the thing is that Western culture had distorted history and distorted things so much for the, especially for the black man, that when you turn to the Asian culture, you didn't find that same distortion. You know, China actually preserved their history better than America in reality. You know, before Chairman Mao, Chairman Mao tried to throw that throw it back in the garbage again, right? But before him, it was so much that was preserved that it gave you a glimpse of the world that was different than just Greek mythology, different than oh, four hundred years of slavery. You know, I mean, it was different. It became something very uh, healthy for me. So I enjoy going back to the world and seeing it for real after studying it and watching it on TV. Let me share one thing with you guys. So Allah is the greatest, right? And if, in the sense of the mercy and the ideas that's put upon that man, like there's a hadith that says, what a man intends in his heart, he will get. If he intends to marry, he'll, he'll marry. If he intends for richness, he'll get that. But he should best have the intention to strive to know Allah. That's the best intention. And through that, he'll get everything, right? So like Solomon said, they, all, they offer Solomon, you know, what you want, Solomon? You want riches? You want power? He said, I want wisdom. And with wisdom, he got everything. But the thing that, that proves this for me is, is that I'm watching this movie, 36 Chambers, and I fall in love with it, right? Because there's a scene in the movie where the guy start speaking about the five colors blind your eye, the five tones deaf in your ear. Without wisdom, there is no gain. 
And this is inside of a movie. And these are the Buddha monks. It's, it's the 35th chamber. So I'm like, what the? And it's hitting me in my brain, right? And a young man was playing, playing a lead character named Gordon Liu, a.k.a. Master Killer. He's hearing this wisdom. And, you know, they push him out. So, you know, because he, he's not ready for that. And he has to go through the 36 chambers and learn Kung Fu. And I watched this movie, and I'm in love with this movie, in love with this character. Years later, I'm doing my movie, Man with the Iron Fist. And I meet him. I met him through Tarantino on Kill Bill. He plays two, two characters. He plays the guy with the beard in Kill Bill, and he also plays Johnny Moe, who's one of the 88 killers. So I met him then, but now I'm doing my movie, and I want him to be in it. And we meet, and I just tell him, I'm like, listen, when I was young, I saw this movie when you went into the temple and you started asking the old abbot, you want to learn Kung Fu? And he started teaching you the five tones deaf in the ear, the five colors blind the eye. I said, in my movie, I want you to be that abbot because that movie inspired me. And I think if we shoot this scene, some other kid somewhere is going to feel it and get inspired. And he agreed to do it. You know, in fact, he had said no. That's why I had to meet him. He said no at first, so I had to meet him. And I told him the story, and then he just started writing down so much Buddhist scriptures that he's a real Buddhist, and he, he practiced Buddhism. So he was writing down all these scriptures, and we, and we I said, yeah, we're going to put all that in the movie. And we changed it. We said the five colors blind the eye, so we got to see through the veil of our skin because there's no black, brown, red, yellow, and white. Those are the five colors that's blinding our eyes and making us place judgment. He says, you got to see through the veil of skin and realize that everybody's life is precious. So we do it. And when the movie comes out, I'm doing an interview. One interview is some young kid from Japan. And he called, you know, he's like, what's up? He's speaking, you know, he's kind of speaking, you know, the language. The English is not clear. But he said, when he saw the movie, he cried. He said, that scene made him cry. He don't know why. He said, it felt so inspiring to him. So I don't care if nobody else saw this movie. The goal was to inspire at least one person like it inspired me, because that inspired me. My album was called Into the Wu-Tang 36 Chambers, because I'm inspired by what Bruce Lee did and by what this movie showed me. And Allah blessed me with able to go, to go back and meet the people that did it, you know what I mean? And put them in a the movie to hopefully, I don't care if one person see it, which did. This kid cried and said he was inspired and we'll see what he come up with in his life. You know what I mean? Powerful. Where were the times where you guys actually intersected your careers or your lives? Like Nas, you obviously worked with Wu. Yeah, I should be out trying to get in a, you know, trying to get a vibe of what the music business was. And I would see Prince Rakim. I would see him out and about and you had this air around you. And it was just wise, confident, and happy. And like, mm. yeah, I'm 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 doing my thing in this shit and and I'm doing what I want. And um you didn't seem like no industry dude ever. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, what's up with son? <laughs> son was he on some shit. And he had the I love you, Rakeem, with the girls. I said, this dude is crazy. But the joint was a jam. The joint was a jam. And he's talked, the girls love him. And it's like, it's a jam. The beat, what he's saying, his confidence, the swag. I just remember that. And I'm, I'm going to skip to coming to Staten Island. 
with Raekwon and coming to the lab where you was cooking up, it'll be a different person anytime. You know, different members of the crew there at different times, you know. And I got on a verbal intercourse joint. And I think at first Ray was like, I want you on investigative reports. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and I was like, yo, the beat was running. You know that too, you know, you did a verse for the investigative reports. Really? Where is it? It's, it's kind of, it's lost into the into the templates of time, but he did verse for investigative reports first and we then we switched it to... Yeah, um, verbal intercourse. And um, I was like, yo, this joint is special. Like this joint right here on the classic Cuban Links album and um, Ghost in there doing what he do. So I, I always felt like it was a family thing. You know, like my cousins from over there through this thing. I just was able to identify with you and, and, and your team. And for me, I'm going to use a chess analogy because Wu, and Nas might not know this, like Wu at the time was like anti-everybody. You know, when you're an MC, you always, you know, it's a, it's a sport. It's like a boxing. You want to knock everybody the fuck out. But Nas was one of the few MCs that everybody loved. I, just, I remember driving. He had It Ain't Hard to Tell. His verse on The Barbecue, I think it's called, yeah, right? Yeah, Live with Barbecue, yeah. Uh, then you have the, others, the other joint, too. Serial Killer Plot. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, back to the Grill again. Right. Each time you appeared... Right? I just remember, especially Ghost. Me and Ghost was probably at one point, like, in separate. We lived together, right? So, but each time you appeared, it was always like, yo, money nice, money nice, money nice. <laughs> you know what I mean? Ghost, Ghost came to me and played, it ain't hard to tell. Like, he's like, yo, listen to this bomb. And I said, oh, yeah, oh, that's that kid Nas. I said, yo, yeah, yo, he, he's nice. And I, I met you when you was probably, I think I met you, Nas, you might have been 15 when I met you, God. We was, um, I think, near the Palladium or somewhere out there. And it was maybe, I don't know if it was after Back to the Grill or the Barbecue. Because how, how old was you when you did the, uh, I was, Back to the Grill and the Barbecue? When I did Barbecue, bro, I'm like 16, 17. So I met you on, I met you on the, when he was 16. And in my opinion, he was already a master MC. Like, if it was chess, he was a Bobby Fisher. Because... It takes appreciate time. you, bro. On the real, the real. It takes time to become a master. So I'm, I might have been, a, I might, I might have got a, my mastery. I started rapping at nine. I probably hit my mastery around 20, 21, which is good. You know what I mean? I'm not knocking that. This dude hit it 15, 16. Mm. Um, so he's a prodigy in all reality. You know what I mean? So when you meet Wu Tang, we all got our time in. So we got 10, 12 years in. So Ray's already, tw- you know, he's 21, but he got 10 years in. So, but Nas had it. To my opinion, Nas is a, is a prodigy of, of hip-hop because he had his mastery at 16. You know what I mean? Salute to you. Coming from you, that's... Wow. Uh, I appreciate you, man. I, I, and I said that to my brothers before. I was like, he got it early. Like, you know what I mean? He figured it out. Whatever it was, whatever the spirit was that came to you, whatever the, the talent, whatever degrees of that, that did it, you, you had it at, at, a, at a young age, and and that's and, and look, that's by the time when you get to Illmatic, it's undeniable. It's undeniable. You know what I mean? And people was arguing, you know. You know, I know it's it's not good to praise yourself, so I understand the humbleness of it. But people are arguing like, "Yo, this dude is 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 ill as Rock Kim." You know what I mean? And you know, you don't want to never take nothing from Rock Kim because you know he definitely pioneered so many brains. 
But what people were really feeling is that, yo, at his age level, at his youth, at his and at his descriptions, it's like it's pure. It's, it's, he see it. He see it so well that you see it through him. It's not easy to do that. You could go and go check a lot of people's lyrics, and you're not going to be able to get the clarity that he brought to us in his lyrics, you know what I mean? So I salute you. And I knew that from, I knew that from then. I remember, when I, like I said, when I first met you, when you was like, you was, I was 12, I went to hell for snuffing Jesus. I was like, that's, that's deep right there. Even though it's a, you know, it's a lyric, but the concept of it, kidnap the president's wife without a plan. <laughs> this nigga kidnapped the president's wife without a plan. No, your lyrical metaphor content in your mind has to be deep. And like I said, you know, he was younger than us doing that. You know what I'm saying? We had some dope lyrics, but this this guy's younger saying shit at that level. It's funny, sometimes you you meet people that are wise or older than their years, and then now, you know, I feel like with both of you guys, you have youth beyond your years so it can go both ways right where you have that energy and that spark still creative still like really really hungry as well you know before we let you go because you've been so generous with your time like I'm sure Nas probably has some last thing that he'd like to ask but I also want to ask you what is the state of the woo like it seems like after all of the trials and tribulations of things that you guys have gone through over the years there is some acceptance that Woo means something even bigger than the individual. And it's so important to so many people that now it's, you know, on TV and in movies and in books and has been kind of seen as a force. Like, tell me, what is the state of the woo? We good. <laughs> yeah, we good, yo. We're going to go ahead and um, we here, you know. You know, when the bad signal goes up, we respond to it. You know what I mean? We brothers, so. Nice. Man, I mean... My question would last another two hours, so I just <laughs> I just appreciate your time. Me and RZA, we got up in the studio before to work on a project. I'm sure when time permits, we get that in. Just everything you're doing, man, from TV to movies to, uh, you know, just the positive energy that's around you, and you're teaching all of us. I learned so much today just talking to you. Keep doing what you do. Thank you, Nas. Peace and blessings. From Spotify, the executive producers are Gina Delvec and Jason Rodriguez, with additional production support from Leslie Guam and Andrea Salenzi. And special thanks to Courtney Holt, Jessica Dow, and everyone at Spotify who helped the bridge come to life. For Mass Appeal, the executive producers are myself, Nas, Peter Bittenbender, Jenya Meggs. Lead producer is Medina Pawana. And associate producer is Serge Jabrija. Our writer is Gabe Alvarez. Samara Langer and Cliff Cristofaro are our editors. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.